I love all this different kind of songs. Some are new, some are old, all declaring the same beautiful truth that Christ is born. And he's the one to be praised. He's the one that came to rescue sinners. And, and so there's all kinds of music this time of year. And I'm glad that we've got everything going around here from contemporary stuff to traditional stuff. It's all here. But um, I was just notified of something and I want to bring it to your attention. Uh, someone uh, left their keys, their car keys in one of our restrooms. And so it is for a Ford Escapade. And uh, the license number is 7VDH389. The person who found it went to the parking lot and went like that. I sure he did not go through your car. I just want you to know that. All right. He just wanted to identify the car. So if that's your car, Dirk has your keys. Dirk, raise your hand. He's our sound guy. He's got your keys right there. So just go ahead after service and grab them. And, uh, you know, we don't want you. We're so glad you're claiming by church you lost your car because you can't find your keys. I mean, we're not, we're not going to do that. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot happening. There's a lot going on. And, and uh, just to, to keep people kind of uh, in the flow of things, if you, you haven't been with us, we, we are involved in a project we're calling the Access for All Project. And uh, we're basically expanding our, our building, that, that uh, nursery wing right there that you see through the window. We're expanding it out. We're making it so that people have access if they have mobility issues by installing things like elevators and open, refreshed restrooms. We're also expanding our nursery because, as you can see, we've got a bunch of kids running around around here, and uh, we anticipate having more of them. And so we just want to make sure we open the place up more. And, and so we've been involved in this. Uh, at the end of last year, we received commitments from people for, for giving. And then through, uh, from then on, from the end of last year through to today, we've been uh, receiving those gifts. And, uh, and we have a really encouraging update for you. So a as of now, uh, we've actually received about $397,000 uh, toward the $800,000 uh, committed uh, to this project. So praise God for that. And, and uh, again, we want to thank God for you, church family, and your generosity in, in making that happen. And uh, as you're looking at this uh, chart, you, you might think, well, what are the other boxes for? Well, the, the, the box in the middle, that's for our anticipated uh, you know, giving. If we were to take all the commitments and evenly space them out over the three years, that's approximately where we ought to be right now. So we're actually ahead from that vantage point, and we thank the Lord for that. You might also be asking right now, uh, what's the big orange box at the top left column there? And, and, and that, that re represents uh, the $900,000 that came in uh, in our original preliminary estimates for our project. You might recall when we set out to do this um, and we first were looking at costs, the estimate came in that, that we would be uh, doing a project that would cost $1.6 million uh, out the door. And when we asked the question, okay, well, how are we going to pay for that? Um, the, the, the plan, it remains to this day, the plan is 450000 is coming from cash on hand and our capital improvement fund. And then we will raise uh, $900,000, is what we were saying initially, over a three-year capital campaign. And then we'll utilize $300,000 in debt if necessary. And so the commitments came in, if you'll recall, if you were here with us, the commitments came in at 800000 so a little bit short, about 100000 short of the 900000 And so we were looking at different variables, like how, how do we deal with this? And, and when we were in that season, you know, we were, there were several things that indicated, no, you know what we're going to do? We're going to move ahead uh, with this uh, because there were variables at play, such as the, the previous project we had for our Edwing, the, those costs were coming in at a significant savings from projected costs. And then we were also looking at sweat equity that we as a church family will be putting into the project so we can lower costs there. And also we had a forecasted sort of stabilization of construction costs as uh, different people we were talking to kind of had their finger on the pulse of the construction industry. They're looking down 
uh, or ahead down that corridor, and they're going, it looks like things are going to stabilize. So, so yes, in the commitment phase, um, we received $800,000 in commitments, but now we're in the fundraising phase, and, and so it's wise to keep the original $900,000 in front of us. And so it's a different color. That's why the orange box is there, in case you're wondering. Okay, all that to say, there's an orange box. That's why it's there. Uh, but um, we're, we, we want to, you know, keep the original in front of us because we can aspire to that. You know, we can look to that and go, yeah, Lord, help us to reach that. Uh, because the beauty is there's a lot of people here that weren't here a year ago. You know, there's other people that have entered into uh, this process with us. And so we're looking forward to, to seeing what God's going to do. Uh, you're going to find all this information in a prayer card that's in your bulletin right now, if you want to go ahead and look at that. And so on, on one side of that a prayer card would be ways you can be praying for the project. And then on the other side is, is the chart that you see up here. And so let's just keep bringing these things before the Lord and, and watching what He's going to do. Um, because um, He's being very, very faithful in, in keeping us as a church family in this process. Um, so, uh, other things that are coming up, uh, Eric referenced one of them, and, or some of them, it's coming up in January, and uh, I just want to draw attention to one thing. We're going to be offering forensic faith, the forensic faith study, uh, to the entire church family. So, we had it in one isolated uh, Sunday school class, and it's gone really well. People have been really enthusiastic about it. So, uh, beginning on January 21st, we're going to be gathering all together downstairs. All Sunday school classes will be together, and we'll be looking at forensic faith. And you'll hear more about it later. But essentially, it's, it's designed, it's a curriculum that's designed to help us grow in confidence as we share our faith with the people in our lives. And it actually comes from the work of a guy named J. Warner Wallace, who is a, uh, he was a skeptic, uh, and he wanted to disprove Christianity, and he was kind of tired of people witnessing to him, and he was working as a homicide detective, actually. Uh, he was a cold case detective. And so he thought, I'm going to take my expertise, I'm going to apply those tools to these claims that Christians make so I can debunk them, and these people will just leave me alone. And as he studied, uh, he actually became very much convinced of the historicity and accuracy of the gospel accounts, and he became a Christian. So now his ministry is to share some of those things with other people. Uh, you'll, you're going to enjoy that. Again, sign-ups for that will, uh, will be, become available next week. Um, and then another big development for us as a church family, if you have interacted at all with our uh, church office, without question, you have talked with Nancy Sanders. Uh, that voice was the first voice I heard when I called Clayton Valley Church, uh, when I heard they were looking for a pastor. She's the first person I talked to. By the way, great first impression, okay? Really good first impression. Well, um, after 18 years of serving as one of our executive assistants, uh, Nancy is retiring. I know. I know. We're all that way. Now, now, she's not retiring and saying, get out of my life. See you later. Don't call me. I, that's not what she's doing. Okay. Her and Phil, they're part of the church family. That, that's continuing. Um, we are grateful also to be able to say that as we've prayed and sought who might replace Nancy, uh, Cindy Klobuchar has said yes to taking on that role. So... So we are grateful for that too, and, and so Nancy and Cindy are kind of tag-teaming right now through the month to, to kind of have a smooth handoff with that. Uh, but we want to say thank you to, to Nancy for her 18 years, and uh, so what we're going to do, well, yes, we can do that right now, of course, sure. 
And right now Nancy's going, are you going to call me up? I'll kill you. No, I'm not calling you up. Don't worry. Because <laughs> she's like, phew. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. But we are. Uh, so we're having a congregational meeting at the end of January. And we're going to take time at the end of that congregational meeting to take some time to celebrate Nancy and to give thanks to the Lord for her. So just want to keep you aware of that. Make sure you mark your calendars for that end of January congregational meeting. And we'll take time to say thank you to Nancy then. And, uh, and again, just grateful for her and for Phil and, and their continued uh, involvement uh, in our church family as the, as the years ahead come. So uh, we, we praise God for that. So if I, if I use the, a word with you, um, the word consequence, what do you think of? I think oftentimes when we hear that term, uh, we think of something bad, don't we? Like, ooh, consequence, right? And, and that's, you know, a, a, a legit use of the word. You know, sometimes it's something bad. But you know what? Sometimes they're good. They can be good. We, we'll usually use another word. We'll use the word maybe, you know, outcome or result, right, instead. But today I, I, we want to look at, at uh, some consequences or some results or, or some good things that actually come out of the gospel that give us joy. Uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Uh, because Jesus came and, and what did he do? He, he perfectly kept and fulfilled God's law. And then he died in the place of sinners who cannot keep God's law. That's us. And he showed them that the payment was made in full by rising from the dead on the third day. And this gift of forgiveness of sin and rescue from God's coming wrath is available to all who will trust in Jesus. And so today, if you've not yet trusted in him, that, that gift is available to you right now. You can trust him now. You can just admit to him that you're a sinner. Admit that you have not kept his law. And then receive his forgiveness by trusting what Jesus did to live the life you could never live. And then receive his gift of forgiveness and salvation by faith. And, and when you do that, you will be saved. And, and, and that's a gift available to you now. However, if you're here today and you've already trusted in Jesus, well, now there's a call on your life. There's a call to live your life for him. There's a call to rest in Jesus. There's, there's a call to take the good news of the gospel and not just share it with other people, but we need to preach it to ourselves. We've said this many times. You know, the gospel is not simply the ABCs of the Christian life. No, the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. Never get over it. And so Jesus brings us himself. He gives us himself. And, and this time of year, you know, we, we do. We give a lot of gifts. So grateful for Christmas joy. Grateful for the times we get to share gifts with family and, and loved ones. But the reality is, is all those gifts are there, are really a reflection of the gift God gives us in Jesus. That's why we do that. It's just a picture, a small picture of what God, God's given us in Christ. And, and this gift of Jesus brings us joy when we really see it. It gives us deep joy, full joy, a sturdy joy, even under trial. And so when we're in those times of, of trial, we, we need to understand this, this gospel and the gift of Jesus and, and the things that come from the gospel. So the gospel is... A gift, the gift of Jesus himself described by the gospel, but there are also other gifts that come along with the gospel. And we need to understand those too, because when we see those, we, we then enjoy 
all that God's given us in Jesus all the more. So today what we're going to do is we're going to spend some time together exploring, running through, quickly, running long, long ways through. No, just kidding. We're going to run fast over you, the book of Philippians. And, and we're going to spend time together exploring this book. By the way, it starts on page 154 in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. Uh, it's in the New Testament, so it's going to be toward the back of the book, page 154. And as we think about Philippians, we realize, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a thing that, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote. And, and he, he wrote it um, during a time when he was in, in prison. But, but before that, he, he was going on his second missionary journey accompanied by Silas. It's about 49 AD. And, and his custom was to enter into a town and first go to the synagogue. That's what he would do. And then he would preach the gospel there in the synagogue. And then from that, there would be a gathering of people. And typically, the church would start that way. But here's the thing. When he arrives in Philippi, there are so few Jewish people in the city that the, the, the necessary quorum to form a synagogue, which would be 10 Jewish men, they, they didn't have it there in Philippi. And so for a few days, Paul's going, where are, where are these people? Where, where, am I, where am I starting in terms of planting a church here? And after a few days, Paul discovered a Sabbath congregation meeting alongside a river outside of the city walls. And it was a group of God-fearing Gentile women. And they were meeting for prayer. And, uh, and so uh, the, the spot that, that Paul met them at, the, the river they were meeting near is the Gangites River, and, and you can actually see it today. It's there right by the ancient city wall of Philippi, and you can visit that place. So that's likely where, where Paul and Silas made their initial contact with the Gentile women worshiping the God of Israel. And these women would become the first Christians in Philippi. And one of them is of particular note. We hear about her in Acts 16, verse 14. Her name's Lydia. And here's what it says. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Notice, God opened her heart. God gave her new life. And she believed. And she would be, she and her household would be the very first believers there in Philippi. But now we fast forward to AD 60 and things are really challenging. Um, Paul's Christian friends in Philippi, they're under a lot of pressure from a lot of different trials. The church has grown and, and Paul, their spiritual father, he's not there with them. He's actually not on another missionary uh, tour right now. No, he's actually in jail. He's writing them from prison. And uh, in addition to that, there in Philippi, there's persecution coming from the outside. Because if there's one thing we know about that city at that time is, well, you can put it this way, City Hall in Philippi was very, very Roman. That meant that the emperor was held up as a deity. He was to be revered as a god, even at times worshipped. But the Philippian Christians would bow to no one except the one true God. Then within the church, things were going difficult also because people were being, becoming preoccupied with the threats outside 
and then they wanted to kind of go towards a place that was safe. They wanted to go towards a place that was comfortable. And sometimes they would have different agendas against one another that would threaten the church's unity. And so from the outside, there's opponents. From the inside, there's friction. And yet they had received the good news of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They actually had a reason for joy. And so Paul writes this letter to them, the book of Philippians. And that's really the theme of the book. It's joy. It's saturated throughout its pages. It just shouts out rejoice repeatedly and then gives reasons why. And so we're going to look at that today and examine several things. And so today we're going we're to see gospel gifts that instill joy. Again, the gospel is a gift, but it's a gift that brings along with it other gifts. And so let's go and let's unwrap each one of these together and just take a moment and really look at it. What God's given us in the gospel. And the first what we find is this. God started the work in you and he will complete it. Paul describes in chapter 1, verse 6, this very thing. He's, he's praying for them. And he's going to call them to a place of confidence because he has confidence. And it's confident in, confidence in God's character. It's confident in God to bring about the completion of the thing that he began in them when he saved them. Look at what it says. Philippians 1, 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We saw it with, with Lydia. God opened her heart and she saw. And for every believer who's here in this room, the truth is God is the one who reached into your life and turned on the light so that you could see. He brought you to him. He did that. Did you respond by faith? Yes, you did. Did you trust him? Yes, you did. And yet, God's the one who, when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, we're told in Ephesians 2, makes us alive. And Paul's point here is, you might find yourself in the midst of a deep trial. You might find yourself in the midst of massive discouragement. You might have opposition coming from the outside. You might have opposition coming from within your church family. You might be facing the opposition of indwelling sin inside of you. And it's a battle. And you need to know something. He who began the good work is going to finish it. We need to hold on to that. You know, there's a, a bunch of people that enjoy a, a category of art that I hadn't thought about very much before this week. And that category of art is unfinished art. It's a whole segment of art appreciation, art education. Unfinished art. And so people enjoy seeing it because sometimes they look at it as a way to get closer to the artist, right? Because you can kind of see the underpinnings of what, what the artist is about. What are they doing? You know, how are they making this thing? You know, sometimes they'll use a different pigment underneath skin color to give it a more realistic coloring. Sometimes, for example, they would use green. I was telling uh, someone this, and they said, well, yeah, well, because, you know, there is sometimes a green tone to skin. And I'm like, I'd never thought of that before. That came from my daughter, by the way. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's heavy. I never knew that. 
right? But, but that's true. So you can kind of see where, where they've kind of come from. You can see their thoughts a little bit more. So observers feel sometimes I can, I can kind of be a little closer, uh, closer to the artist. This particular painting is by three 17th century French brothers known as the Lenon brothers, Antoine, Louis, and Matthew. And the brothers would work in collaboration with one another. And, and they were uh, so good at what they did. And they painted in such a unison that even experts who just study their work, they cannot tell which of the brothers painted which portion of their paintings. However, with this particular painting, it, it never got completed. Antoine and, and Louis died in 1648. And then Matthew just didn't want to keep going. And so it remains unfinished. And in retrospect, even in this unfinished state, many, many art critics would say this kind of becomes an embodiment of, of loss and of absence. Isn't it wonderful to know, though, in contrast with this, that God always finishes what he starts? Think of it this way. You, brother or sister in Jesus, you are, in this moment, an unfinished work of art. He's not done with you yet. And God, God is not threatened by death, so he's not going to finish it. God is not distracted. He's not flighty. No, when he begins something, he finishes it every time. He's not absent from you, his child. He's begun a work in you, and you're going to be sanctified. You're going to be holy. You're going to be brought safely home. And he will bring the work of what he's started in you to completion. So we need to guard ourselves from thinking, well, he's messed up. <laughs> you know? I mean, how do you think about yourself? Think about this past week, maybe. Maybe you're going, Psh, I'm, I'm terrible. I, I stink. Whatever it is. Or maybe it's more serious. You know, maybe, maybe you're really feeling like, no, I'm actually very, very concerned about the places I've gone, the things I've seen, the, the choices I've made, the things I've done. And yeah, this passage calls you to repentance. Certainly, we need to turn away from those things. But in doing so, even in repenting from sin, we do so in hope. Because he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. This also affects not just how we look at ourselves, but it really needs to affect how do we view one another? How do you see others, especially in the family of God? Are you grateful for God's ongoing work? And other people? Are you joyful in anticipating what he's accomplishing in them? Do, do, do you sense, yes, when I'm looking at this person or that person, I'm looking at an unfinished masterpiece by the master artist. And it's not done yet, but he's going to complete that. Or instead, when you see others, do you find yourself criticizing them or thinking little of them? Or refusing to really spend time with them or invest time with them because, well, truth be told, deep down, they're just not like you. At least not yet. Here's the thing. God's not done with them yet. 
He who began a good work, he's going to be faithful to complete it. And let's pay, take special note of the end of verse 6. Notice, he's going to perfect it or bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's looking to the end. Paul is writing about the day that Jesus comes back. That's our hope. And so God will bring this to completion. And so when we see the people that Jesus died for, and we kind of get, get sucked into or, 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 or tempted to go into sort of critical mode, we need to draw, stop back and go, Lord, forgive me. Because I'm really, I'm, I'm criticizing your artwork. And I'm thinking, yeah, you kind of messed up on this person. And we've got to be careful with ourselves too. Our hope doesn't rest in our ability to show everybody how together we have our lives. Isn't that a relief? No, our hope is in the one who will finish the work he began. And when we see that, now we have reason for joy. So let's continue to look at these gospel gifts that instill joy. So we can rejoice, believer, that God started the work in you. He's going to be faithful to complete it. But here's another gospel gift. As a believer, do you understand this? You live for the only real reason to live. Christ. There's only one reason to live. It's Jesus himself. And Paul goes to great lengths to describe this, and he kind of gives us a summary statement. And it's found in, in chapter 1, verse 21. Look at what he says. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Why is he talking like this? Well, remember, he's in prison. He's there realizing he very, he very well could be leaving this earth soon. And, and if we look just briefly at the, at the context, look at um, describing, again, his trials at that time in verse 19. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Wow. In Paul's frame of mind here in prison, what he's saying is, I very well may die. And he'll talk later about other things related to that trial. But here he's saying, hey, for me to live is Christ. And that means this, if I do die, it's gain. <laughs> it's even better. We need to ask ourselves a question. Are we really living for the only real reason to live, Jesus? How can we get down to understanding whether we're kind of in that same space that Paul's operating in? And I think we can ask ourselves a helpful question. The question is this. What passion fills your thoughts in your waking hours and sleepless nights? I'll ask the question again. What passion fills your thoughts in your waking hours and sleepless nights? 
Where does your mind go when you've got downtime? What happens with your thinking? Uh, in, in ancient Carthage, there are some ruins that were, were found there by archaeologists. And there's an inscription uh, that was made by a Roman soldier in the first century. And this is what his inscription was. To laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game, that is life. So in other words, the centurion saying, hey, for me to live, for me to live is to hunt, to go to the baths, and to party. That's pretty much it. That's what I'm about. And, and today, don't we have just like a, there's like a, a buffet set before us as 21st century Americans of, of things you can live for. I mean, really, you can just walk through, fill up your plate, fill up your plate. You're still not done. There's still more. It's, a, it's like the never-ending buffet line. Because you can live for academic achievement. You can live for career success. You can live for health and fitness, a fulfilling marriage, a respectful and accomplished children, financial stability, popularity, community recognition. And it goes on and on and on. And some of those things aren't bad, by the way. They're even good things. But that's part of the deception, isn't it? It's a part of what, what, it, what an idol is. We, we talk about this a lot around here if you haven't been with us for very long. Uh, the idols of the heart that we very easily fall prey to. So we typically wouldn't have a statue in our home that we're bowing down to, but we do create things, we do make things. And some of the most insidious idols for us are those that are actually good things. That in our minds, in our hearts, we've made into ultimate things. And so what we're being warned about here from Paul in, in Philippians is any of those things, whether they're evil in and of themselves or not, none of them are big enough or strong enough to actually be our life. There's other ways we can kind of find out where we're at and whether we're operating in the same space as Paul is when it comes to what is your life. If your life is falling apart because your career is falling apart, you know what that means? It's because your career is your life. Take anything else that I've mentioned in that list. If it's not there and because of that your life is falling apart, that means you've placed your life on that thing. And the call that we're given here in the book of Philippians is repent, turn away from that. You know, repentance is I'm walking one way and now I've got to turn around and walk the opposite way, 180. Turn away from those things. Again, if they're good things, it might not be that you're just abandoning them and saying forget about it. It might be that God's calling you to that. It might not be. But certainly you're turning away from them being your ultimate love. And that can be hard, especially when maybe we've had a dream that's come true and then it's dashed. That's happened to, to, to many of us. There's a haunting picture that I've uh, looked at before, and I think it's worth, worth seeing again. One single day of fame, right? We all dream of it. Well, the person in this picture experienced that in a big way. His name is Jimmy Nicole, and he had the unique opportunity to fill in for Ringo Starr in a handful of concerts after Starr got tonsillitis during the Beatles tour. And so for 10 days, he traveled with the Beatles on tour throughout Australia. 
Here he's photographed after the tour at Melbourne Airport on the cusp of returning back to his bland, normal life of 1964. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be him in that moment? You've tasted the victory, the lifestyle, the fame of being the biggest band in the entire world. In today's terms, there really isn't any band that has the equivalent market share of fame. Okay, maybe Taylor Swift. Okay, maybe. <laughs> but not musical contribution to what's, you know, happening with the art form. Okay, so, sorry, Swifties. Don't get offended, but it's true. Uh, but, but, what do you, but you, what do you see on his face? What do you see there? And I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I can't read the guy's mind. But, but it sure looks like hard, hard, hard loss. And we experience losses in this fallen world all the time, don't we, in various ways? You know, be, be it kind of a daily loss of things that are challenging to us or deeper losses to death and sickness, to deeper losses of family, trauma, children walking away from God, walking away from us. What Paul is saying is, 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 is this, if you are living for anything else but Christ, then death is loss because you're losing that thing. But if you are living for Christ, then even death is a gain. So when you live for the only real reason to live, you are freed from the petty pursuit of your own comfort. When you live for the only reason to live, you're freed from all those idols that say, I'm going to satisfy, I'm going to fulfill you, and they can't. They lie. They masquerade as something they're not. So how do I set my, my, my life free from these idols? We repent, we turn away. What does that look like? Well, it, it means I devote my life to a cause bigger than all these other little things that clamor for my attention. See Christ for who he really is, the king. I, I, in, in, in doing that, I'm actually set free from the fear of what others can do to me. Be it a boss or a neighbor or someone else who's antagonistic. I mean, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, they literally are facing death for walking with Jesus right now, today. There are more martyrs today in the name of Jesus than there have been any other, any other time in history. Let's not, be, let's not let what we live in deceive us. How are they set free from that fear? Because for them to live is Christ. And to die is gain. So there are many gospel gifts that instill joy. So let's think about this together again. God, firstly, God who started the work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. Secondly, you now live for the only real reason to live Christ. But there's also a third gospel gift. And it's this. You found a new ambition. 
because of the gospel, you've received a new ambition. And it's really this. It's to die to self, live for Jesus, care for others. That's your new ambition. Die to self, live for Jesus, care for others. And you're like, well, wait, isn't that really three ambitions? No. No. It's one with all these three things interconnected. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2, verses 3 and following. He says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Well, how do I learn to live like that? Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul gives us in this section not only a beautiful depiction of the, of the humbling of Jesus, the way Jesus emptied himself and came to live as, as a human, becoming the God-man. I mean, the, the tremendous act of humility. But, but, but he also is giving us a logic for how we are to live free of this kind of self-centered, selfish living. And so he gives the command in verses 3 and 4, and then he shows us the attitude we're to have. Notice that verse 5 begins with that. Have this attitude in yourselves. He's not simply saying, behave this way. He's saying, no, let your inner life, let your attitude reflect who Jesus is, your, your Lord, the one who gave his life for you. It is also interesting how, what it looks like if we work backwards from that. So if verses 5 and following are the attitude we should have, then verses 3 and 4 are, are the way it shows, the way it comes out. And it is fascinating, verse 4. Don't look out merely for your own personal interests. It doesn't mean don't look at your own personal interests at all. He's not saying that. It's sort of a given you're a human being. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to look out for your personal interests. But what's fascinating is this. He's really saying, honor and care for others as instinctively as you care for yourself. That's what's different. Everyone cares for themselves. Jesus talks about that. People do that. But what happens is when we actually follow Jesus, when we see him and what he's done and the way he, he laid out his life to serve others, and when we follow in his footsteps, now we're looking to care for other people. And so if you actually were to look more closely at the way the, the, the Greek lays out in verse 4, personal interests is placed at the beginning of the phrase, Meaning it's emphatic. So he's saying, 
personal interests, don't just look out for those, but also for the interests of other people. And that looking, it has the idea of an ongoing, continual looking. And, and, and so here, I love how Paul unfolds this because it's not simply a matter of that's right. You're a selfish person. Stop it. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, no, you have received so much in Jesus. You've been reconciled to God. You've been made to be at peace with him. You've received forgiveness. You are clothed with Christ's righteousness. God is with you. He is near you. He cares for you. And because of that, and because this salvation is full and complete, you're free now. Not to be enslaved to live only for yourself. You're free to love God and love others. And that's a way better motive than just go do the right thing. What happens when we live like that? Well, this supernatural work that Jesus did to rescue us is the very same way in which he pours out his supernatural work within us by his spirits indwelling. And now we're able to pour out towards others encouragement, love, comfort, partnership, tender compassion. And it looks a lot different than what we see out in the world, doesn't it? Let's move on to another gospel gift that instills joy. As we've seen, the first one was God started the work in you and he will complete it. Secondly, you live only for the real reason to live, Christ. Thirdly, you found a new ambition. And lastly, you enjoy a new stability. That's another gift that comes from the gospel. You enjoy a new stability. Why? Because peace overrides anxiety and contentedness overpowers grumbling. Yeah, there's a new stability because peace overrides anxiety and contentedness overpowers grumbling. So we see this in chapter 4. Go ahead and flip over there. In the first portion we see in verses 4 to 7, we see peace overriding anxiety. Look at what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Are you seeing that joy theme? Right? Yeah, there it is. Again. But then he goes on. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He, he, he declares the, you know, this wondrous joy that he has. But then he does give a command in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Literally, what he's saying is this. Stop being anxious. So in the command, it's assumed the Philippian believers at that time, they were anxious. And as we've already described, they had a lot of reasons to be anxious. Paul's in jail. They're getting attacks from the outside. There, there's disturbances happening within the church itself. There were all kinds of reasons to be anxious. From the hostility of their neighbors to the possible threat of, of, of death or imprisonment. 
And so Paul, Paul is in prison and he's writing. Let's remember that. He's not just going, that's right. Don't worry. Just be happy like on a beach somewhere, you know, in a hammock. That's not him. He's in jail and he's saying this. And, and, and how does this come about? It comes about by prayer. And we've got to ask that question. Do, do, do we, in those moments, turn to prayer right away? Do we do that? And, and I, I want to say sometimes, yeah. And then when I think about it more, I'm like, eh, maybe not right at first. And then I think about it more, and I'm going, well, you know what? It's so easy for us to turn to other people, isn't it? First. And that's not bad, by the way. We are brothers and sisters. We are called to share burdens together. We're called to encourage one another. But this is a question of what do we do first? What's our pr primary uh, response? And doesn't it seem also, by the way, that when we turn to other people, as much as we might think that's for prayer, maybe, it turns into something else, doesn't it, often? Like a lot of times it's like, I'm turning to someone else and I'm grumbling or I'm complaining. Or, or there's this sort of like, there's this evil out there. You know, when the Bible talks about, yeah, there is evil out there, but guess what, buddy? Look in the mirror. There's evil in there. And a lot of times our hope gets caught up in sort of these outcomes that we want to have happen. I want my kids, my spouse, my friend, my boss, my whoever to do this. I want this certain outcome. I want this personal outcome. I want this political outcome. I want this professional outcome. You know, whatever it is. And then we discover something. I am out of control. And it shocks us. We would never say, oh, no, I'm in control of everything. We don't, we don't say that, but we do live like that. I mean, really, that's why our hearts are so easily overwhelmed by fear, isn't it? We think we're in control, and then we're not. And so then we are, we are overwhelmed by fear with the unknown, or rejection, or failure, or need, or pain, or heartbreak, or sometimes it's living. It's just too hard. Sometimes dying. We're looking at the end of our life. A very serious moment. Sometimes it's loneliness. You know what? Sometimes it's harder just to be around other people. It can be the opposite. But, but this peace that surpasses understanding, how does it work? Well, let's face it. It certainly has a lot to do with prayer. A lot to do with prayer. That's what he says here. You know, he says it in verse 6. Notice, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And so you get some prayer principles from this for sure. Come to God messy. Again, don't clean up your act first and then come to him. No, come to him messy. Rejoice in the gospel. See, see that's, this whole book has been about the gospel and the joy that comes from it. So we exceed what Jesus did in our place. We see how he humbled himself and died for the sins that that we committed and then took the punishment that we deserve. And so now we come to him messy and we also come to him trusting. Yes, you trusted him the day that you came to him by faith. But now, brother or sister in Jesus, as you continue to walk with him, trust him. Even prayer alone, prayer itself is an act of trust, is it not? We pray anticipating God is going to hear and respond because he will. Not again because of us, but because we're in Jesus. Thus, again, we pray in Jesus' name. We come on the merits of Jesus, not ours. 
He's our high priest. And we also trust that him, he is the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, and he really does answer prayer. So yes, come to the Lord in prayer, messy. Come to him trusting, and also come to him sincerely. You don't need to pretend. One of the greatest joys I've had over the years is when someone comes to Jesus and just you know, talking them through the gospel and, and then kind of talking about these initial movements of life in Jesus. And oftentimes we'll be talking, and then I'll be like, hey, let's pray. And I'm, I'm thinking of, of one guy in particular, great guy. Um, and, uh, and he kind of looks at me like, I don't want to pray. I'm like, yeah, but... But you did pray. Remember when you prayed and you said, Lord, you know, for, he's like, yeah, yeah. I, and I go, and, then, and don't you pray like throughout the day? He's like, yeah, but I don't know how to pray like you. I'm like, oh, stop. <laughs> I don't know how to pray either, man. I'm still learning how to pray, okay? I don't know. No, it's, it's, we come to him as we are and God's not looking for a formula. Make sure your prayer is eloquent. Make sure your prayer is, you know, saturated with theology, but also smooth and relatable to other people at the same time. No. Probably one of the best prayers I've ever heard of, maybe that God's even heard is, you know, help. That works. That's a good one. One writer described a time when uh, their son was about six months old. And they were at the dinner table and he, he, he stuck his little hand out in the general direction of the butter and said, boo-boo. And this person comments, you know, we didn't say, John, you should say please. And it's not boo-boo, but butter. And furthermore, right now you're asking for that. There's kind of a self-orientation here that we don't want to left, leave it unchecked. It might ruin your life. Like, yeah. no, boo-boo was their son's first word, okay? And so they laughed. And they gave him the butter. And at the same time, a, a wise parent isn't going to simply, you know, hand over a bunch of butter to a small child, right? You don't give them the whole plate, like, hey, go for it, right? No, there's an, a, a bit you apportion out. You cut a piece, right? You, and, and the other thing is this. There could be other times with a child where the answer is no. You know, you're cooking in the chicken, or the kitchen, and, and the child, you know, reaches out for a hot tray of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. You're going to be like, no, you're going to prevent him from getting those. Why? Because it's an act of love. But at the time to the child, it looks like, no, that's really good. He can see it. He can smell it. God's our heavenly father. And, 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 and what does he do? It, when he prevents us from getting what we want, it is an act of love. It doesn't seem like it at the time to the child, but it is. And so with the Lord, God's not correcting your language. He's not saying it's butter. He's not saying the way you stretch out your hand isn't right. He's not, no. He's saying, you're my child. Come to me. Come to him messy. Come to him trusting Come to him sincerely and watch what he does. Well, we find again that with this enjoying of a new stability, it's not just because peace overrides anxiety and that has everything to do with prayer, but we also see a new stability that comes from contentedness and the way contentedness overpowers grumbling. 
And we find that uh, it, it's, a, it's a comforting thing to see how Paul describes contentedness in, in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. Because it's not something that Paul just had. You think, well, Paul, man, Paul was like the, the pillar of the faith, man. Paul was the guy who brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Yeah, and guess what? Paul was also a work in progress, too. And so when he describes contentedness in his life, it's very interesting the way he describes that. So let's look at Philippians 4, 10 through 13. See if you can spot the way he describes contentedness. He says this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So they were giving him provisions at, for, for a time, but there were also other things that were coming up. And so there was a time where the, they, they weren't able to do it as much. And now it's been revived toward him. And he's grateful for that. But then he clarifies something in verse 11. Not that I speak from want. And here it is. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He's learned it. It took Paul time to learn to be content. You know what that means? There's hope for you and me. We get to learn to be content too. He kind of describes it now from his own life in verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and all, every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So we find that, again, Paul, with this contentedness, he learned it over time. We also see in verse 12 that all kinds of circumstances come and go in his life. He has hunger. He's filled he is in a place of, of, of having more material possessions. He's in a place of lacking material possessions, even facing poverty. The circumstance isn't the issue. He's learned to be content in Christ. Wow. So this genuine contentedness of Paul, it's learned over time. It's independent of circumstances. And again, verse 13, we see it's rooted in his Union with Christ. Notice, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And by the way, is this not one of the most abused verses in the entire New Testament? Oh man, people take this thing out of context all the time. And they kind of just say, yep, you know what? I can do this because it's Christ who strengthens me. And I'm told right here, I can do all things. So look, if you want to fly, please, please, please learn how to fly an airplane. Okay? Go to flight school. Don't take the controls of the airplane reciting this verse. Okay, just do us all a favor. Don't do that. You know, or maybe if you're a golfer, right, and you're sitting there, yeah, you want to shoot like a really high score like 70. Realize this. If you go up to that tee, having never played golf before, and you mutter, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, before you swing that club, you're going to make all the people golfing with you atheists. All right? <laughs> so don't do it. Now, the context of this phrase is actually, here's the amazing thing, is contentedness. Do you realize that? That's the context of the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And you know what? For us to walk around as contented people or as people growing in contentedness, frankly, that's more miraculous 
than picking up the controls of an airplane flying without ever learning it. And that takes the power of the spirit supernaturally working within the heart of a believer. We can't sanctify ourselves, but we can remember by union with Christ as the indwelling spirit completes the work he began in us, we grow. And so as we've seen, there are many, many gospel gifts that instill joy. God started the work in you. He'll be faithful to complete it. Another is you now live for the only real reason to live, Christ. Thirdly, we saw that you have a new ambition. Die to self, live for Christ, serve others. And you enjoy a new stability. Why? Because peace overrides anxiety and contentedness overpowers grumbling. It's a beautiful thing to enjoy these gifts that come along with the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, let's not just leave them unopened or under the tree. Let's take them out. Enjoy them this week. And, and, and see the ways in which God's going to use us to further this gospel message resounding from our lives in the lives of all those around us who need to hear from him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your grace. We want to thank you for, again, the gift of the gospel that instills joy and, and also how all of these different accompanying gifts awake and joy in our lives. Thank you for, for completing, promising to complete the work you've started in us. Help us, Lord, to truly live for the only real reason to live, with a new ambition, enjoying a new stability. And Lord, for those here today who have never trusted in you or turned to you, Lord, we would even ask that in this moment, they also would come to you and believe as you call them to come to you and to find rest for their souls in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.